0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Many of us have been glued to our screens as we continue to work from home. But today where we live, we challenge you to look outside as we talk about bird watching in our state. We're taking a break from politics because winter is a great time of year to observe birds like owls and other raptors. Coming up, we learn about bald eagle surveying in our state. We also get a glimpse into into the work of a bird rehabilitator. Have you picked up bird watching over the last several months? What birds do you see where you live? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest joining on Zoom is Ken Elkins, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon, Connecticut and Audubon, New York. Ken, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: This is not our first bird show on where we live. It'll certainly not be our last. I know I've been a fan of birds since I was in elementary school. So I have to ask, Ken, when did you get hooked on birds?
2: Wow, we have something in common. It was (laughs) elementary school for me as well, that my grandparents moved north rather than south. Like everyone else's grandparents, they moved to Vermont near the Canadian border. And rather than television, I had the bird feeders outside the patio door as my main form of entertainment. And we had an encounter with one bird hitting the patio door and I got to hold onto this chickadee and uh, it woke up and was able to go back out on its own. It was a good story, but that few minutes with that bird in my hand, I think really sparked a different form of curiosity in me
0: it's interesting that those small encounters can do that for me i was again a child and i heard this loud squawking one day and i ran to our our indoor porch and in the front yard there was a big bird with a little bird in its talons i would come you know i've learned later that that was a hawk but it was just so neat to see that happening right in front of me so i'm curious ken have we seen bird watching surging in the pandemic what are you hearing from uh, your members and people that that visit you uh, at your Audubon center?
2: Well, uh, since the spring, uh, especially when things like going to the mall and the movies and other normal, uh, what we'd consider normal forms of socialization were not an option, people immediately took to our trails, our parking lots at our Audubon centers in Connecticut and at land trusts near us uh, have been consistently filled since the spring. And we have lots of inquiries of classes on how to become a better bird watcher. And our friends who own bird watching stores have seen a surge as well in people getting the things they need to help them become better birders.
0: I mentioned your Audubon Center. So tell me where you're based. And when we think about uh, the different, I guess, uh, pathways that birds take through our state, what's unique about the area you're in?
2: The Audubon Center I'm currently based at is the Audubon Bent to the River in Southbury, Connecticut. It's 700 acres uh, with almost 15 miles of trails and there we manage for a mix of not just forest birds but birds who need uh, second growth habitat, shrubby areas like indigo buntings and prairie warblers and blue-winged warblers and uh, by having that mix of habitats close together, we have a a larger diversity of birds than you might find on some other open space properties nearby. And because of that, we also have birders from all over the state knowing that they can come and find an indigo bunting, a brilliant blue bird, just barely bigger than a goldfinch, fairly regularly uh, without too much of a walk from your car every spring.
0: Mm. I mentioned earlier that winter is a good time for bird watching, especially to see raptors. Talk about that activity around our state,
3: Ken.
2: Well, uh, hawk watching and potentially finding owls this time of year, they uh, frequent large open areas. And for winter bird watching, you can do a lot of that from driving in your car along scenic roads in more rural areas or stopping and parking along our big, large parking lots at state parks and town beaches or other spots that they can go. So it's something that you can do on a nice warm winter day or even bundled up and with the heat of your car, not that far away. Uh, And because these birds are larger and they're out in those open spaces, it becomes a great spot to be. And there's a greater diversity in the late fall and through the winter, sometimes of those hawks that during the breeding season, some of them can be quite secretive, but during the winter, they're looking for food and they're out in the open a bit more.
0: I love that. So tell me about the, the hawks, the different kinds of hawks that we can see right now, Ken.
2: Sure. Uh, even just driving along a major road, if you see a hawk sitting on the side of the road or a, on a light pole, that's most likely the red-tailed hawk. It's our most common hawk in North America by far. Uh, in it, Most likely you'll notice that it's very pale underneath uh, on the belly with maybe just small dark markings. If you see one with reddish-orange on its chest this time of year, that's most likely red-shouldered hawk. They're becoming uh, much more abundant in Connecticut, especially in wet areas. And then we have, in larger, wide-open areas, rough-legged hawks. Also, generally pale. Some of them can be very dark. They have two different color forms. And what's neat about watching red, sh- uh, rough-legged hawks over open spaces right now is that they can hover over one location, that they can flap their wings, and so you have a four-foot wide wingspan hovering almost like a hummingbird over a spot.
3: Down near our
2: shoreline in particular, there's big open areas with owls, like short-eared owls and snowy owls can be found especially late in the day, maybe early in the morning, and for those, we need to make sure we give them enough distance when we do spot them.
0: I definitely want to talk more about the snowy owls that uh, some are lucky to see this time of year. But my guest on Zoom is Ken Elkins, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon, Connecticut and Audubon, New York. As we talk about bird watching and we want to hear from you, are there particular birds you're noticing now versus in the spring or summer? If you have a general question about a bird that you've observed, you can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Matt tweeted earlier that the highlight of their days is seeing the male and female cardinal at their feeders together, but lots of chickadees, titmouse, blue jays, and golden finches. Of those birds that I just mentioned, Ken, are they they the ones that live year-round and you're more apt to see them in the wintertime?
2: Yes, all of those are year-round residents here. Uh, Goldfinches tend to be uh, a, a little bit more migratory than those other ones that you listed. Cardinals and chickadees, in particular, are very residential and very um, dispersed very uh, infrequently. And what's great is that we kind of need a daily dose of birds in our lives, whether it's those bursts of color, like uh, Matt was saying, or if it's the sounds in particular, is another thing that there's new research showing that sounds of birds uh, make us happier and reduce the stress levels in our bodies by listening to birds every day. So we need that time.
0: Now, when we talked about raptors this time of year, can you talk about what they're eating in the winter versus uh, in the spring and summer, Ken?
2: They are eating mostly rodents and other small mammals. And then we have a few species of hawks, Cooper's hawks and sharpshinned hawks and peregrine falcons in particular are eating birds. Uh, Some of the other species will as well. Red-tailed hawks in more urban areas are known to eat a lot of pigeons as well. Uh, That those are foods that they're gonna eat during the summer as well. And what is different about their diet this time of year compared to uh, the summer is that they're feeding their young more things like large insects and caterpillars uh, when they're nestlings versus now as adults, they need a lot of protein and they need a lot of calories overall. So that's why they're eating um, an abundance of those rodents and small birds.
0: Can you mention these other smaller raptors that we might see? So over the weekend, this was really neat to see. This while I was driving, uh, there was a small. It looked almost like a pigeon, and it was flying really erratically. And then I noticed what it was. What it was doing is it was chasing a much smaller songbird, and I saw it literally grab this small black bird right out of the sky. What do you think that bird was?
2: It was either a sharpshinned or a Cooper's hawk. And uh, when people get into bird watching, that is one of the first groups of birds that confound people because <laughs> they are very, very similar in uh, sizes and shapes that a female sharpshinned hawk is basically the same size as a male Cooper's hawk. And they have the same exact colorations. Uh, instead, it's things like the shape of the head, the shape of the tail and the overall size of that head to the body are the actual ways that we can identify, distinguish the two species. So quite often we might not be, I I even go out times and well, it was a Sharpshin or a Cooper's, I didn't get to see it long enough to know which one it was.
0: Mm. What about kestrels?
2: Ah, American kestrels do eat small birds. Uh, Their populations during the winter are very limited though. Uh, They require Mm. large open spaces, usually 30 acres or more. And because they cannot hunt in deeper snow as well as some of our other raptors, their numbers in Connecticut are fairly low during the winter, that I've only seen a few reports of them staying in uh, one or two key habitats. Uh, Otherwise, we might find more of them during the summer, especially in farmland areas.
0: You can join our conversation as we talk about birds in our state, especially the ones that we see in winter. The number eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Again, eight 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 seven two zero W M P R. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. Uh, Ken, we got a question from Molly, who's eight, and she wants to know um, she's been birding uh, since the pandemic started, and they have bird feeders to watch out the front window. But she wants to know what gives birds their color
2: ah what gives birds their color some of the birds like cardinals uh it is a pigment in their feathers so uh they their feathers can actually um when you find just one individual feather on the ground you'll see that reddish color to it blue jays and grackles and other birds that you see a uh dark green or purple and iridescence and also blues The color comes from the structure of the feathers that uh, you notice birds preening, they're fixing the little feathers within the feathers, the little barbs on there, and making them more aerodynamic and kind of zippered together. But those little zippers of structure actually reflect reflect and refract light differently, and that's how we end up seeing the blues that are there is um, an optical illusion, actually. It's not a pigment. It's how we see it.
0: Interesting. Well, hopefully that helped answer Molly's question. Again, if you have a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We mentioned owls earlier, Ken. Uh, in the wintertime, some people are lucky enough to see snowy owls. Talk about uh, you know why they're migrating down here and what has been the activity so far in January 2021 around our state for people to see snowy owls?
2: Sure. Snowy owls are uh, native to the Arctic Circle. And uh, every few years, there's usually a larger lemming population during the summer will result in a boom in population that there's more young snowy owls that are born. And it's those uh, young, that abundance of young birds is typically what ends up with a migration south to areas where we get to see them. Some move every single year, like there's always a couple at Logan Airport in Boston but coming south of that North Shore of Boston is something that doesn't happen every year. This year, there's been a few, uh, in particular along the Connecticut coastline, although we've received um, photos of one sitting on the end of an airplane at uh, Bradley Airport recently, and uh, some others were sitting on a pole at a sewage treatment plant at another town in Hartford County. Uh, but generally, it's the large shoreline beaches. Uh, Stratford, in particular, has been one spot that people have seen them often on. Uh, but they don't respond well to a lot of paparazzi, which happens mm-hmm. very quickly. And they'll go and find a new secretive cove that humans aren't able to find them.
0: That's a good point that you made, uh, Ken, because when we see uh, wildlife that's unusual or for the first time, people get excited and they want to go out and get pictures. But if they see a snowy owl or just any type of bird that they want to observe, what is the best way to do that without disturbing them?
2: Staying quiet, moving slowly are the first two things. Uh, And Then if you're going to be going out to try and find them, uh, wearing clothing that is uh, more representative of the outdoors, Uh, it doesn't have to be camouflage, but muted colors are another important thing that we're learning, that the birds see more colors in the spectrum of light than we do, and we don't know what they're actually seeing at times yet. So if you have any clothing, even like you're wearing your jacket you would wear running, it's got a reflective strip on it. The birds might see that even more than we do at night um they might see that reflecting during the day and that might alert them as you're moving any closer if you notice any changes in behavior that the bird doesn't seem to be paying attention but suddenly its head pops up more or if the bird starts staring directly at you it's probably a sign that you're getting too close and stop where you are and stay at that distance uh that's where some birders and photographers get larger equipment And uh, most of us have to reserve ourselves that we're not going to get a photo like those from National Geographic or an Audubon Magazine.
0: Uh, One of the best places to bird watch is at Hamanasset State Park in Madison, Connecticut. I've been down there many times and I've seen uh, people with the huge lenses, Ken, uh, as they're um, scouting for uh, the amazing array of birds that you can see at Hamanasset. But can you name some other places for people to check out?
2: Sure, uh, just uh, west of New Haven in Milford, there's the uh, Connecticut Audubon Coastal Center at Milford Point that there's quite often uh, an array of overwintering waterfowl, both in the marsh and on the Long Island Sound side there. Five minutes down the road from there is Silver Sand State Park. Uh, and that there was an old dump there that's now an amazingly open space. It's fenced off so the birds feel safe in there. And that's a spot where we see a lot of hawks. Uh, and also a lot of songbirds seem to like the bushes right in the temporary parking areas is another popular spot. If you're in the Northwest part of the state, then places like White Memorial Foundation has lots of great trails. Uh, and even their feeder station at their visitor center is a great spot during the winter. In and which field? In the, yeah, And then the Hartford area uh look up the hartford audubon society hartfordaudubon.org and get a list of their driving directions to their sanctuaries there's one of them that's nicknamed station 43 is an old trolley station in uh the main street of south windsor and that is the spot you start to walk to uh old marsh in the farmland area adjacent to it. it is an amazing spot that when i lived up there that was my favorite spot to go
0: you have a lot of knowledge from the many years that you have been birding and also working with Audubon, Connecticut and Audubon, New York, uh, Ken. But I'm curious for people who maybe are just starting out with birding uh, and how social media and technology have changed uh, uh, birding uh, for the better in terms of helping uh, people who are just starting to be able to identify the birds that they're seeing. I know that uh, somebody tweeted, Shane, Sean actually uh, tweeted, I wanted to know your thoughts on the Merlin Bird ID app. Uh, He and his kids love using it. And I'm curious what some other apps are that you could recommend.
2: Sure. Uh, Merlin is uh, an interesting tool. I remember years ago that I was one of those volunteers training the software for Merlin is both an app in your phone now or a website where you can insert a photo that you've taken. uh, And it will help you give suggestions of what bird it was. Sometimes it can be pretty definitive. It will also give you a hint that it's not really sure. Um, And so it's a great tool to use if you don't have someone else to talk to. I don't think it's 100% accurate yet, Um, but it is a great tool to start with that you can try and work things out. And at least it will give you a hint of where to look in the book. Because there are some times that there's a bird that it's in a small group of birds you're not familiar with and it looks too similar to something else. Uh, but also with social media now uh, and other technology, we can still connect. If we can't see each other in person, the birding community has been very welcoming and it's been great to see some of the new birders I've trained over the last few years are now the mentors to other birders on social media. Has been really fun to watch. Uh, And by helping somebody else out, it helps reinforce their own skills and they're becoming better birders by helping out those beginners and so it takes a matter of minutes at most to post a photo on say a facebook birding group of connecticut there's three or four major ones out there and people will almost instantly be able to give you uh help with identification so uh it's in our world of instant gratification social media is caught up before we would have to uh email a photo to some expert and hope that they got back to you, now there's somebody out there almost immediately.
0: You're hearing Ken Elkins here on Where We Live, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon, Connecticut. As we talk about bird watching in our state, coming up, we're going to learn about bald eagle surveying in Connecticut, and later we talk with a raptor rehabilitator. Are you a birder? What birds do you see where you live? You can join us at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanial. My guest today, Ken Elkins, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon Connecticut and Audubon New York. As we talk about bird watching, now what birds do you notice where you live? You can join us 888-720-9677 or if you have a general bird question, you can again call in and talk with uh, Ken 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Skip's calling from Hebron. Skip, go ahead.
1: Hi. Um, we, were, we were walking the other day at Heard Park down in East Hampton, or down in East Hampton, I think it is. And we saw what we thought, when I looked them up, were black vultures. Is that reasonable? Because I had never heard of black vultures around, but I'm not a, uh, a birder per se, but i just never seen any before.
0: Is that possible? Good question, Skip. Ken, what can you tell him?
2: And during the winter, we now seem to have more black vultures than turkey vultures in the state. It's a southern species that we didn't have nest in the state until almost the year 2000. Uh, And now there are some roosts uh, that are 50 plus black vultures in spots in Connecticut for the winter.
0: Do we know why black vultures are coming up? Does it have something to do with uh, how climate is changing, Ken?
2: Uh, Yes, that with climate change, our winters have not been as uh, um, cold and sustained cold as they used to be. And so over the last 50 years in particular, we've seen a lot of birds that are Southern species overwinter winter here. Uh, many people might remember a time when there were no cardinals here during the winter or very few even their neighborhood. Other ones like Carolina wrens are birds that we're hearing sing even this time of year 25 years ago they were kind of tough to find during the winter and even 70 years ago mallard ducks were a bird that weren't around in Connecticut so some birds it's because of climate some of them they have other adaptations that are helping them expand their range and they're moving northward and that tur- that black vulture is definitely one that we we've seen that uh, range expansion pretty much go align with some other climactic factors
0: we have another vulture question Caroline's calling go ahead Caroline
3: I think he kind of asked, answered my question, but we've seen an influx in Norwich, especially certain times of the year, and right now. And they're not very attractive to watch, but um, they're there, and they roost in the large pine trees around the neighborhoods, and on some some of them are on a lot of the roofs in the area too, which I don't think people are too happy about.
0: You're talking about turkey vultures, Caroline?
3: Turkey turkey vultures, yes.
0: Uh, For people who haven't seen, Ken, for people who haven't seen a turkey vulture, uh, Caroline mentioned they're not very attractive. Can you describe uh, the turkey vulture to us?
2: Well, their size is impressive to start with a seven foot wingspan standing, what, almost three feet tall, uh, but they have very small heads for their bodies and no feathers on their head uh, because they eat uh, roadkill and other dead animals. So by having their head near all of that that carcasses, they don't want to get an infection or have to clean their feathers. So they just have an adaptation with no feathers. So they just don't look as pretty in general terms to people because of that look. Uh, And also by having that many very large all dark birds, it kind of looks a little ominous to some people. Um, And it does seem to be some of the more Um, Urbanized neighborhoods, Norwich, Willimantic, uh, Derby, and New Milford, it's all in urban neighborhoods with large pine trees or spruces, and the birds will line up all the way down the block on roofs of houses to line up till they can get into those trees together at sunset, Uh, so yes, we have had other neighbors ask about that before. Um, It's mostly a winter thing, and very few will roost like that during the summer, that they're all with their own separate nests on different cliff sides and old barns and things.
0: You can join our conversation as we talk about birds in our state and bird watching, 888-720-9677. Jeff's calling from Wallingford. Jeff, go ahead.
1: Yeah, hi. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, another great bird watching spot in Connecticut, uh, in addition to the list uh, that your host mentioned that, uh, lighthouse point park in new haven is a phenomenal spot for migrating raptors in the fall it's uh, an official accounting spot and uh i've been volunteering there for over 10 years now uh counting raptors and it's just amazing the amount of birds that come through there eagles falcons every hawk uh so really uh, people should check it out in the fall
0: Thank you for that tip, uh, Ken. A good reminder that you can see these types of birds not only in rural settings but in urban settings as well.
2: Yeah, uh, that is a treasure. It's really tough when people ask uh, to only an amender to list what places to go to. But Lighthouse Point Park is second only to Cape May, New Jersey, on the Atlantic Flyway for numbers of hawks passing over. Some years, it's an amazing spot.
0: So let's talk more about the raptors that we see, including bald eagles that winter in Connecticut along the Connecticut River. This is amazing when you see them up close. And I wanted to bring into the conversation now Bill Reed, chief ranger of the last Green Valley National Heritage Corridor, to talk about the surveying that's done, uh, checking out the, the pairs of bald eagles that are nesting in our state. Bill, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So briefly, for people who don't know, tell us about the Last Green Valley and why it's such a special place in our state.
1: Well, it's uh, up in the northeast corner of uh, the state. Um, It occupies 35 towns and um, 26 in Connecticut, nine in Massachusetts. If you think about the Thames River and the Thames River watershed, that is basically the area that encompasses the Last Green Valley National Heritage Corridor. It was designated a National Heritage Corridor in 1994. By an active of Congress, um, and the reason is that this region is still predominantly undeveloped—over uh, seventy percent undeveloped, mostly forest land, farms and fields—and it's so close to the I-95 corridor, you know, between Washington and Boston, it's pretty much all developed. And here we are, uh, close to that I-95 corridor, and we're still predominantly undeveloped land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what it's all about. Um, I work for an organization that is the man. Entity of the National Heritage Quarter. We do report to the National Park Service, uh, but we are also a, a private nonprofit.
0: So tell us about the bald eagles that you see in the last Green Valley and how residents can help uh, the State Environmental uh, Department uh, survey uh, the bald eagles in our state.
1: Well, the Midwinter Bald Eagle Survey is actually, um, actually, it's the Midwinter Eagle Survey, is actually a national effort. Um, over 30 states represented the lower 48 uh, do conduct uh, the, the Eagle Survey. Uh, here in Connecticut, it's managed through the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Now, back in 2009, uh, the Lash Green Valley organized a wonderful expedition, a paddling expedition called Source to Sea. Uh, connecting the drops to the Last Green Valley as a way to draw attention to the water resources in our region, we paddled all the rivers all the way along the Sound, and along the way we saw a lot of eagles, a lot of osprey, and great blue heron and the like. But we saw a lot of eagles, and then later that year I saw a report from Connecticut, the uh, EEP and Connecticut uh, Wildlife Magazine, that there was one eagle counted on the Kinnabog River um, that uh, for midwinter survey. So I got in touch and I said, you know, there's a lot more than that. Do you need some help? <laughs> so, so in 2010, uh, we started uh, with 13 volunteers serving in about 10 different locations along the Coonabong and Chautucket River. That has grown over the years. And uh, to the point where here, um, just recently, the mid Survey is always in January. So this year was on January 9th. Uh, we had 48 volunteers 16 teams, uh, 23 liver lo- river locations, and four, uh, 14 flat water and lakes and pond locations. Um, and we counted 35 eagles. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to get out and help for four hours in a cold morning. And what you're doing is really, um, you're, you're part of a national effort, getting a sort of a quick census of eagles. And I wanted to bring in
0: I wanted to bring in Ken just real quickly when we think about the bald eagle population and because of conservation efforts are consistently seeing more bald eagles in our state Ken?
2: All across the state and like Bill said it's been um just over the last 20 years in particular we went and 25 that we went from one nest in northern Connecticut in 1994 to maybe five or six, 10 years later. And in the last 10 years, we're now uh, closer to 50 nests and over 60 young uh, left the nest. Last year was a new record.
0: Mm. So, Bill, when you're out there with volunteers and you're able to see bald eagles, describe that experience. What's it like?
1: Well, it never, it, I never get tired of it. I mean, they, they are a large bird, wingspan between six and seven uh, feet. Um, they weigh between eight and 12 pounds. Um, they're a magnificent bird to watch fly. Um, and I, I just never get tired of it. And the volunteers certainly um, enjoy that, that, that experience also. We're seeing more and more of them. We have several active nests and territories uh, up here in the last Green Valley um and I'm one of the volunteers that helps monitor uh, the nests that are up in this neck of the woods also and it truly is a uh, it's really a year-round magnificent experience but in the winter time you see they, they are congregating um, down from the northern the frozen north of Canada and Maine so they're coming down to where there's opportunities for more open water as a fishing bird that's uh, that's their primary food source so that's why we do the, the big winter survey this time of year. And that's why we see so many of them uh, this mm. time of year.
0: You're hearing Bill Reed, Chief Ranger of the Last Green Valley National Heritage Corridor, uh, this area in the quiet corner of the eastern side of our state, uh, where they are doing surveys of bald eagles. And you can see them around our state, especially in the winter. I wanted to take some listener calls now. Uh, Patrick's calling in from Westville section of New Haven. Patrick, go ahead.
1: Hi, Lucy. Um, Yeah, Westville is a great area for birds. Um, I live very closely to the Yale Athletic Field, so it's a nice, big, open space. The West River comes uh, down towards the shore, um, so there's some marshy area. Um, And there's definitely bald eagle nests in some of the lights uh, in the Yale Athletic Field. I've rescued a barred owl. I've seen uh, finches and um, all sorts of birds in, in Westville. So, yeah, uh, urban areas, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, great birds in, in the area.
0: Well, thank you, Patrick, for sharing that with us. Jonathan has a question from Farmington. Jonathan, go ahead.
1: Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, we are so fortunate to live in such a beautiful state and area, um, but that includes bears. Uh, My neighbor currently has a 500-pound bear uh, hibernating under his deck. Um, So (laughs) I am wondering what I can put. This is more for the warmer months, obviously. But what can I put in my yard that attracts birds that also doesn't attract
2: bears?
0: Mm. Good question. Uh, Ken, that is the uh, challenge, right? Everyone loves to see birds, but we definitely don't want to have bird feeders up in the spring. But in, in the winter, is this something that, that people can, can do as well?
2: Possibly you can have bird feeders out, but um, we're, there's actually been a lot of discussion of how much do bears actually hibernate in Connecticut. We've had some that it's been more like catnapping, and it's only during the coldest of the weeks of the winter. Uh, and we don't want to create any habits of the bear's behaviors. Um, there are some bird feeder products of seeds and suets that have a um, capsaicin in them because uh, mammals don't like hot pepper. But birds don't react to it whatsoever. They don't have the sensors to pick it up and notice it. Uh, And I've heard mostly good reviews of that working. The other thing you can do, though, is just consider growing your bird feeders. That uh, on our Audubon website of ct.audubon.org, you can go and find our, in bird-friendly communities, we have a Plants for Birds database. And you can find, by your zip code, what plants are going to attract cardinals or Orioles, and all of these birds, even the barred owls in our neighborhood are going to catch caterpillars during the spring and summer to feed their babies. So we need more native plants to to increase that food web for all the birds.
0: And pollinator pathways are a good uh, way to do that. Uh, that's a great question, Jonathan. And, uh, and thank you, Ken, for that that uh, website suggestion where people can learn about the plants that can also attract birds to their yard. I want to take one more call before we head to break. Jeff in Coventry. Jeff, go ahead.
1: Hi, um, just a quick question for you. We have some feeders up, and we got a lot of different birds here. Um, my question is among the little birds, Um, How do you tell, if there's there's a quick way to tell a difference between a wren,
3: a sparrow, and a finch?
2: Ken? Uh, Wrens are going to have longer curved bills and a longer tail that's usually cocked a little bit upright. Carolina wrens most common are a little bit more orangey brown in tone. Um, sparrows, there can be seven, eight species of sparrows visiting people's backyards, especially if you're near more open areas, they're near the farms in Coventry. Um, they tend to be brown. A lot of them have streaks. They have smaller ice cream cone shaped beaks. Finches have a wider, broader, um, ice cream cone shaped beak. They tend to have reds and gray grayish tones to them rather than brown like a sparrow is how you can break up those three groups the easiest
0: Thank you for that description. Again, you're hearing Ken Elkins, who's community conservation manager for Audubon, Connecticut. I want to thank Bill Reed for joining us, chief ranger of the Last Green Valley National Heritage Corridor, for talking about the bald eagle surveys that happen. And coming up right after the break, we're going to talk to a raptor rehabilitator in our state. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me on Zoom, Ken Elkins, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon, Connecticut and Audubon, New York. And joining us now is Mary Beth Kayser, Director and Owner of Horizon Wings Raptor Rehabilitation and Education that's located in Ashford, Connecticut. Mary Beth, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. We heard from listeners uh, who see vultures and also the magnificence of of the bald eagle, especially in the winter months. But tell me a little bit about how you got attracted to become a raptor rehabilitator.
3: Well, I have uh, got my state license about 36 years ago, but you need a federal license to do the migratory birds, including the uh, raptors. And I've had that for 21 years now. And it's Basically just a love of all things wild and birds especially have always fascinated me.
0: So when we talk about raptors, uh, tell me about the types of birds that you're helping rehabilitate with your volunteers.
3: Oh, we take everything um, from the small screech owls, saw-wet owls, Uh, red tail hawks, peregrine falcons, eagles. If it's a raptor, we accept it. We accept vultures also. And I do have a soft spot for the corvids, I have to say. I really like our our ravens and crows.
0: Uh, Crows are so intelligent. I I also like crows, Mary Beth. Um, Anne is calling in from East Heartland. Anne, uh, tell us about what your observation, I think Mary Beth can talk a little bit about this too. Oh, thank you so much, and Thank you, Mary Beth, for all your work.
3: Um, Sadly,
0: I have noticed many, many barred owls um, dead on the side of the road and um, actually contacted some folks that seem to know about birds, and they said it was because we're throwing biodegradable trash on the roadside that is attracting mice, that is attracting very hungry birds. I'm wondering if you could comment on that and any suggestions. Um, It seems like there's small gestures we can do to save our bird life.
3: You're right, any type of trash, uh, whether it's that uh, fast food bag or even that apple core, it's going to attract rodents to the side of the road to eat it. One of the features of a raptor, their eyes face forward. And many times they are just fixated on that rodent in the median or on the side of the road. They don't see the car coming and they actually fly straight into it. So litter of any kind should never be thrown out on the roadside, even if you think it's biodegradable.
0: I see a lot of chatter uh, in the town on our Facebook town page, uh, Mary Beth, where people don't like uh, the rodent, uh, the vole holes or the mole tunnels. And oftentimes the suggestion that people get is, oh, call this uh, company, call that company. But the the impact of rodenticide, what what are you seeing when you're rescuing raptors around our state?
3: There is a big impact of rodenticide. Um, it actually seems to maybe even becoming a bit greater. Tufts university has been studying this since about 2011. They studied 65 red tails last year, a sample of 65 and every single one of those birds had a level of rodenticide in them high enough to treat, um, regardless of whatever injury brought them into the clinic. So, Rodenticide, that mouse, that rat, that chipmunk, they eat that. It takes a good 10 days, seven days to die. They look for a water source cause they're thirsty. All animals look for water sources. Um, one mouse with rodenticide in it could kill a red tail easily. Um, the There's uh, first generation and second generation uh, rodenticides. Some are stronger than others. Some have been outlawed for general public use, but other places like big industry still use them. So it's a big problem. Mm.
0: So when you and your volunteers are encountering a bird that is down for any reason, are there ways to, to help that raptor if they have been poisoned?
3: Yes we um, can get them supplements to help the blood clot. And that's another thing why rodenticide is is so hazardous to our our birds, our raptors, because the birds don't have the same clotting factors as you and I, they don't clot blood as well as you and I. So with the rodenticide being an anticoagulant, uh, they are especially sensitive to it. So a visit to a vet, uh, blood work, and the proper uh, supportive care.
0: You're hearing Mary Beth Kayser again. She's director and owner of Horizon Wings Raptor Rehabilitation and Education in Ashford, Connecticut. So what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, you encounter in your work, Mary Beth?
3: Uh, I think the biggest number of injured birds we see are are struck by cars, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. And sometimes it's just educating the general public, just letting them know um, No, it is a federal offense to harm a raptor. Even if you got into your chicken coop, you're not allowed to shoot them. Uh, Fix up your chicken coop so they can't get into it. If you have free range birds, you're going to open them to predation. So basically a lot of it is just education on what to do if you find an injured raptor, how to handle it um, safely for you and the bird. And please call a rehabber. Don't try to rehab this bird or any wildlife on your own.
0: So when somebody sees an injured bird, what should they do? Uh,
3: Get in contact with the proper authorities. The DEEP has a list of wildlife rehabilitators. Um, You can also call their emergency number for a rehabilitator. Don't approach a wild animal. If you don't know what you're doing, um, harm could come to you as well as that animal. Get advice. Get advice from somebody with experience so no one or nothing gets hurt.
0: Did you see that amazing story a couple of weeks ago, Mary Beth? There was a Connecticut hiker that rescued a bald eagle in Thomaston and wrapped the jacket around the bald eagle until uh, wildlife uh, officials could meet him on the trail.
3: Yes, I did see that. In fact, actually, uh, a fellow rehabber friend of mine was one of the first ones to get a call. And um, then the DEEP intervened, which was wonderful because they got it to a much closer rehabber because the sooner you take care of that bird, the better. And that young man, he was pretty brave, uh, and I'm glad no injury came to either of them, and that bird is being helped.
0: Oh, that's good to hear. I wanted to fit in uh, a couple of listener calls before we end. Uh, Christine's calling in from Farmington. Christine, go
3: ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, I, um, I'm a big bird watcher. Uh, this year, I'm home with a broken arm, so I've really been able to watch the birds a lot. Um, And I have just two comments. Um, One, I have problems with bears here also. So I started feeding mealworms, and um, it has twofold positive effects. One, the bears don't seem to like it. And the other thing is that um, I'm inundated with bluebirds this year. I have so many bluebirds. It's just, like, wonderful to watch them. I'm just enamored with them. So... Um, those are really just my comments. I guess that I'm curious if this, if it's possible to give too much protein to the birds in the form of the mealworms.
0: Uh, good question. Ken Elkins, what can you tell Christine?
2: That's an awesome concern, and I'm glad you've uh, found the bluebirds being able to visit your feeders uh, because of the mealworms. They generally won't eat many seeds. They will eat sunflower hearts, I've heard. Um Birds are pretty amazing in the fact that they know how to choose their diet and um, will uh, stop eating a food source if it's not something that they should be eating too much of. And during the winter, extra calories in whatever form they can be is uh, just fine. Those mealworms, especially some of the dried up ones, there's also a pretty high fat content, um, is pretty valuable for those birds as well. Um, The only spot where we see them eating where they shouldn't be is feeding waterfowl at a a pond where people are feeding them things like bread Um, is the only spot that we see that becoming a problem. But what you're feeding in the backyard, they'll they'll be great with, and uh, I wouldn't have any concern.
0: Amy on Facebook writes, she has a couple of bird feeders and she can't seem to attract any birds other than the LBB, little brown birds. What can she do to attract more colorful birds, Uh, Ken? Maybe try mealworms, see if she can get some bluebirds?
2: Mealworms would be good. Um, Probably switching so there isn't any form of millet in the seed mix, especially when we're buying at the grocery store or some of the smaller shops. There's a lot of millet as part of a seed mix. Um, switching to sunflower seeds uh, have a higher fat content and um, more nutritious ratio overall that some of our other songbirds will value more. Um, maybe also having something like a, another bush for um, protection nearby might be something that they might need. So even just moving a potted plant closer or moving the feeders a little bit away that. Uh, some of the other species are a little bit more skittish than the little brown birds.
0: (laughs) And Sue on Facebook wants to know how to discourage the squadrons of starlings that are invading her feeder. Any tips, Ken?
2: Starlings love suet, so skip the suet for two weeks. Some birders I know um, will just stop their bird feeders for a couple of weeks and then start up again to see if that helps the birds, that starlings in particular decide to go find a different source. Um, If you do love suet, you have a lot of woodpeckers, then switch into a suet feeder where the birds have to hang upside down, that are chickadees and other forest birds like woodpeckers, can hang upside down and eat. Starlings do not have strong enough feet and the right shaped feet for um, holding upside down to feed. So that might be one way that you have a different style feeder can can support the birds you want and not the starlings.
0: I wanna thank Ken Elkins for joining us today, Community Conservation Manager for Audubon, Connecticut and Audubon, New York. Thank you, Ken.
2: Thank you, it's been a fun hour.
0: And Mary Beth Kayser, owner of Horizon Wings Raptor Rehabilitation and Education. Mary Beth, thank you for your time and the work that you and your volunteers are doing.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
0: I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. On the phones today, Carmen Baskoff, our technical producer, is Kat Pastor. Hannes Brown composed our Where We Live theme song. We hope you have a great weekend. <music>